This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. As always, I've got my right-hand man, Kellen Finney, here with me. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Jason Lupoy, Director of Laboratory Operations at THAR and Editor-in-Chief of Terpenes and Testing Magazine. Jason, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thank you guys for having me on. Yeah, we appreciate you taking the time. We're looking forward to diving into a bunch of different fun topics. We think you're going to be really excited to share with our listeners. So before we get started and dive into those, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into the cannabis space? Yeah, for sure. I went to Iowa State University for my PhD. And while I was there, I was you know working with plants. And I liked the kind of work that I was doing because you know, I was interested in sustainability and environmentally sound pathways for my career. And I was working on renewable energy applications of using different plants and how to characterize those with analytical chemistry techniques. And that kind of provided the foundation for me that I knew I, I wanted to work with plants. I did a couple postdoctoral appointments and I was working at the National Renewable Energy Lab in Colorado um, very briefly. And I got an opportunity to kind of dip my toe into the pool of the cannabis industry. And really from the, the moment I was involved with it, you know, I, I had known about when I spent time in California, I knew that the, the industry was you know, medicinally legal. It was prevalent because I was working at a national lab, I was not like going too deeply into the industry very much. But when I got to Colorado, it was recreationally legal, you know, dispensaries everywhere. And uh, I was very interested in kind of who's doing the science in this industry, who's doing the lab testing, how is it compared to other industries. And I got that opportunity to to work in, in um, at least in an ancillary role with cannabis businesses. And I've got to say that from the outset, it was an industry that was much more aligned with my own personality. I felt like it was the kind of industry where you could let your hair down a bit more. You could have tattoos like like I do. You know, you didn't have to be the cookie cutter, you know, analytical chemist that you might see in another industry. I like that aspect because um, I felt like I could be myself a lot more. And from a different vantage point, what I liked about the industry was that everything was brand new. And, you know, that's been a struggle um, at times because things are evolving scientifically. And, you know, there might be products on shelves already, but maybe the science is still kind of trying to catch up to that huge growth spurt. But I like the fact that a scientist could come into this industry and make a difference from the outset because we needed everything. And that you know, from from some of my other experiences or colleagues' experiences in other industries, that's sometimes not the case where, you know, uh, it, let's just say the gas and oil industry, for example, there might be methods that have been used for 50, 60 years. Things have been very well established. You know, the science is, is known or what have you. And I like the fact that I could evolve my career, you know, in parallel with the evolution of the cannabis industry. I think that's a perfect answer. And I think it takes a really specific type of mindset to be excited by the challenge like you described. And that's the beautiful part of this industry is that the science part is catching up and it takes pioneers like yourself and Kellen and some of the others that we've interviewed to kind of really push the ball forward because this industry is moving. The train is going faster and faster and it's up to everyone else to kind of hop on the train and get up to speed with it. So before we dive into some of these questions, Let's start with typically one of the hardest ones. 
your go-to meal after consuming cannabis? My go-to meal? Uh, that's an interesting one. I mean, I, I tend to like spicy food. So, you know, uh, great tacos or like super authentic, um, something from Latin America, pupusas, something along the lines of that would be fantastic. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. Let's dive into terpenes and testing and the extraction magazine. Can you tell us about that? You know, who does that cater to, you know, a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, when I first became editor in chief of the publications, my goals were twofold really. And they were to really augment the scientific content that we were putting out, but at the same time, not lose any readership. So I wanted to kind of be, you know, the, the, the style of reading that you might find in Scientific American, yet cross that with the cannabis culture that you might see and in, 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 that you do see in, in something like High Time. I wanted to be like a scientific point in between those. And I, I think that we've, we've been successful in achieving that. So we definitely, most of the people that, that are our readers are people that are, are in the industry it might be extractors, it might be analytical chemists or business owners or cultivators, but we also wanted to generate the content so that new people to the industry, whether as you know being employed in the industry for the first time or um, being a consumer for the first time, as many people in the industry are consumers, we wanted to make sure that those people that might be working at one of these places but might not be super familiar with uh, cannabis science and and really botanical science in general would have a, a place to go to to seek out some knowledge and and hopefully read some cool articles in its simplest form. Can you just kind of give a little bit of background about what terpenes are and kind of the unique role they play in cannabis? Yeah, so uh, terpenes are molecules that provide the characteristic scent, you know, fragrance, flavors, like sensory information whenever you are smelling or tasting a plant. If you like the smell of a rose, but or or you like the taste of a, a specific hoppy beer, um, terpenes play a role in that, and so they're they're ubiquitous in nature. They're really a part of um, flowering plants in general. There's the insects that make terpenes, and of course, you know, human beings love terpenes for various reasons. And and in cannabis, you know, this is you cannot smell cannabinoids. Um, I've done some expert witness for cases where people have thought like, you know, they pulled somebody over and they said, I could smell the THC, but you, you can't smell cannabinoids. Um, you can smell terpenes and that's what you're smelling when you smell uh, a cannabis uh, scent from a specific cultivar. And, you know, if you smell 10 different cultivars, you may get 10 different fragrances. And that's basically because of the collection of the different terpenes all kind of combining into being the characteristic fragrance of that particular plant, like a Durban poison or a golden goat, like they're going to have specific terpenes unique to them that thereby impart different physiological experiences. So some terpenes have been associated with, you know, couch lock like myrcene, and some terpenes have been associated with anti-anxiety properties like linalool. And, and, you know, these terpenes are all kind of imparting their different medicinal benefits in the plant, you know, it, it is one whole collection of molecules. So Kellen, from the skunk smell standpoint, when, when someone says I smell skunk, is that the THC they're smelling? Cause then Jason's obviously saying that that's not the case. Do you think it's the, the THC or is it the terpenes? It's definitely the terpenes. Ahead, Actually, um, the, there's a company called Byers Scientific that does odor mitigation strategies for grow houses. And 
they just published um, their the article might not even be posted yet. So this is a bit of a teaser. I guess it'll be posted by the time the the things come out. But uh, they just they feel like they've discovered um, actually in conjunction with my alma mater, Iowa State University. Uh, they feel that they've discovered what molecule causes the skunkiness, and usually skunky things are associated with sulfur containing molecules. And they found that to be the case that this is a thiol or a, a sulfur-containing molecule that, that causes the skunkiness in cannabis. So I, I don't believe it was a terpene. Um, I have not seen any terpene uh, with sulfur in it to date. I, I don't know if those exist, but the ones that I've seen in cannabis, I've not seen that. So I, I think it's just a standard thial. Yeah, no, you're correct. The only only other molecules typically are, sorry, the only other atoms incorporated into terpenes are typically oxygens, correct? I mean, yeah, that's, that's what I've typically seen. Especially in that natural products category, I think that that's really kind of a unwritten rule. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've never, you know, there, there's a lot of terpenes out there. I can't say I've seen, like I started getting into uh, triterpenoids from, um, you know, functional mushrooms and, and learning about those and, and writing about those. Um, but even, even there, I have not seen any that are, are any other atoms besides carbon, hydrogen and, and oxygen. Yeah. I got a funny story about sulfur too. It's uh, a lot of growers use sulfur as a, an organic pest remediation. Right. And um Turns out that that sulfur carries through the extraction process. And when you heat it up, it turns into hydrogen sulfide, right? H2S. And that's not very good for you at all to breathe. So I was like talking to some other chemists trying to figure out what to do. And they, I talked to this older gentleman and he literally was just like, sulfur is so complex from a chemistry standpoint that there are literally just sulfur chemists. And so there's no way that sulfur is integrated into any of these kind of smaller molecules just from a, the size of the atom, and B, how complex the chemistry is once they have access to those D orbitals. I know that was a little a little above your pay grade, Brian, but <laughs> I thought it was worth <laughs> <a bit> sharing. <laughs> I never knew that there was specific chemists that focused solely on sulfur, so that was uh, some breaking news for me, and, and I'm looking forward to kind of asking chemists if, if that's their preferred style going forward. Let's continue on the terpene path and take it back to the selection process. Helen, we're in the dispensary. We're looking to select a product. How do these consumers understand the various benefits that terpene play with the flower? And even more so, to, to probably take it a little more complicated, the, the terpene blends. Do, do those influence the effects? Can you kind of shed some light on that? Yeah. You know, and I think in Pennsylvania, where, I, where I'm located, um, we're, we're fortunate because uh, terpenes are a requirement on product labels. And, and it's usually the same terpenes that are on the labels. Some companies have differentiated their product line by including some of the, uh, you know, less abundant terpenes or, you know, ones that might not be as familiar like sabinine or something like that. But, you know, I think like when I go into a dispensary or when I suggest, you know, unfortunately, a lot of places don't have terpenes on their menus. I have not tended to see that. Maybe it's changed. You know, when I was in Colorado, I didn't really see that on website menus or things like that. And so I think it becomes a challenge to try to shop by terpenes. Now you could potentially smell the product um, in PA. You're not allowed to do that. Everything's already prepackaged. So you're losing that organoleptic aspect of your purchase, of your purchasing power by smelling something, it resonating with you. And then you choose that product versus something that maybe didn't resonate as much with you. 
But when I've talked to people and, I, and I've had the opportunity to even teach some senior citizens um, here in the Pittsburgh area about cannabis science. And, you know, I don't think you necessarily need to know every last terpene that's in the blend and how that's going to affect you. Because a lot of the studies, of course, are going to be on an individual terpene and not a consortium of terpenes. And so I even talked with Ethan Russo before and I asked him, like, if you've got a terpene that's anti-anxiety and you've got a terpene that's known to maybe, you know, uh, cause a little bit of anxiety, is that all coming out in the wash, you know, depending on concentrations and things, of course. And, and he basically confirmed that, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what, that's what he's seen in his career. But I think that you just need to know how this collection of molecules treated you. Did you feel anxious? Did you feel creative? And I think it's important to understand that the terpenes are kind of the navigators of the experience. So the interplay between the terpenes and the cannabinoids in the product, the whole package is what's causing the experience and not just whatever the THC content is. So I've heard people say how they were, you know, new new people to the industry say how they were just stunned that uh, a vape pen, they could be much more lucid than when they smoke the bowl. And it's interesting to me because, you know, people seem to report that when terpenes are at their most prominent, uh, they, they feel like that the product was a lot more powerful, regardless of what the THC content was. No, and I think the, that's an excellent point. And in Colorado, they still are not listing terpenes actively. And so as a consumer going out and purchasing, I think the system that was developed prior to scientists being heavily involved in the space was the kind of three category system we have right now, the sativa hybrid indica. And so Jason, how closely is that current system for classification of in, in reality, it's really a classification of the different terpene profiles for the various cannabis strains. And so how closely scientifically is that tied to specific terpene profiles and characteristics in your, in your experience? Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked, the podcast. If you're looking for a -a one-of-a-kind cannabis-infused getaway, I invite you to join me in the beautiful wine and weed country of Sonoma County, California. As a cannabis lifestyle guide, I've cultivated a -a one-of-a-kind farm stay experience where you can enjoy the casually baked lifestyle and the magic of sun-grown cannabis farms and vineyards. Now, if you're into wine, weed, or both, Get ready to have a high time customized just for you. Learn more at casuallybaked.com backslash travel. That's casuallybaked.com backslash travel. Yeah, I definitely don't adhere to the sativa indica hybrid nomenclature. Um, You know, from what I've read and, and heard from others involved in, you know, taxonomic classifications of the plants, there is zero agreement on indica being a separate species, you know, maybe it's a subspecies, but I understand too, at the same time that some people, that's how they've chosen to market their products. In my opinion, I've seen some, some plants like, you know, the purple plants all seem to be categorized as indicas. And, and I think like at this point, most plants are are hybridized pretty extensively. I'm not, I'm definitely not a cultivation expert, but it seems like over time, you know, with people tweaking things, there's, there's, a lot more hybridization than than what might, what people might think, and I think that when folks have looked at different classifications like that, 
uh, you know, especially some of the, 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 the work of like an Arno Hayes camp or a Justin Pachetic that have used, um, data modeling to kind of tease out relationships between different, you know, either previously conceived classifications, like what you're saying with uh, Indica and Sativa, they found that really the differentiators between all of these things are terpenes and, and cannabinoid profiles tend to be pretty similar uh, across a lot of like statistically similar. Of course, there's going to be some differences and outliers, but I think that really from what I've seen, the main differences from one cultivar to the next is minor cannabinoids and terpene profiles. I kind of ask you a follow-up question from your statement before about the, the post-consumer review of a product, like we were saying, that after you consumed the flower and you felt a certain way, understanding that terpene blend influenced that. But if you don't want to have that post-feeling for the people who are kind of curious and looking to try the product for the first time, Sometimes an off-putting experience that's very anxiety-inducing is a horrible one and then one that leads them to, to stray away from trying the products again. So from an educational level, a consumer that's interested but really hesitant to try these, these anxiety-inducing products, how do they get educated on that to avoid making that selection? Well, I think part of it's their own, you know, playing scientist and trial and error and just seeing what works for them. But I think that you know, come to Terpenes and Testing's website and and read read about the different terpenes. We've got a terpene, uh, you know, reference uh, bar there that talks about different terpenes. And we had the opportunity to uh, write a book called The Cannabis Terpene Experience that dives into the, the science behind different terpenes. But I think like, you know, again, lo- those are all like individual terpenes. What might linalool do for you versus, you know, some other terpene. I think that when we're looking at cannabis, it's really the collection of those terpenes and how they make you feel. So you can always look at like other people's anecdotal reports. You know, how how did this plant make them feel? One of the things that I'm pretty excited about is Mark Lewis out of Napro Research has recently done something called Phytofacts, where uh, when you get a certificate of analysis from the lab, and they do a terpene profile, there's these really cool plots that show all of these different attributes that people might use to describe how they felt or how they will feel, you know, creative, energetic, anxious, calming, sedated, whatever the case may be. But his phytofax is actually based in modeling of data and profiles, and there's a lot of science that went into that. So it's not necessarily just like reading your, if if a bud tender tells you that this is going to make you feel, you know, energetic because it made them feel energetic. There's a lot of science that actually went into it and it's trying to help people understand how this collection of molecules may make them feel. And I think that's looking at it as a group is, is really important. I think that's really strong because I think in my opinion right now, the dispensary experience can sometimes be overwhelming for the new consumer. There's a million products. I think Kellen and I went to one in Seattle. I walked in and must have been one of my first 10 that I walked in. I was blown away. There was a hundred choices of flour. There was 50 different choices of edibles. There was just products everywhere. And I just kind of stood there just overwhelmed of where do I start? Like where, like how do I even navigate the, the experiences? And for me, as a specific palette, because I've had some off-putting experiences with my anxiety, it was one of those where I was kind of like shell-shocked and I needed someone like Kellen to be like, all right, Brian, like you should just take a step to the left and like, here are the products you should start with. And without kind of understanding like the, the details you just shared, Jason, it could be really intimidating for some people. So 
And I think the idea of explaining it from a creative and energetic standpoint is a tremendous start in helping the consumer feel comfortable with their purchasing selection because it is an intimidating experience. Kellen, do you want to dive in from your experience and all the dispensaries? Because obviously you've been to a ton and you've seen many consumers, including myself, kind of walk in. So how do you navigate that and kind of helping a first-time buyer make a selection or recommendation there? Yeah, I mean, it, honestly, it's not cut and dry because every single state is different, right? Like in Colorado, you can go in, they have the cannabis or the flower in a really large jar, kind of like back in the day, if you went to your buddy's house and we're picking up a, a an eighth, right? Or something like that. So like they have all the cannabis in a big jar, you can smell it, they'll pick it up, you can look at it. So you can get a lot more kind of personal with that that choice process. And, and when I'm with someone in Colorado who's never touched it and they're interested in kind of purchasing some flour, the smell and those or, organic leptic senses that um, Jason mentioned earlier, that smell is, is huge. If someone doesn't enjoy that initial smell of the plant, then they're probably not going to enjoy the hot associated with it. Right. And so that's one thing that, that in Colorado, we lean on heavily as far as decision-making processes go, but like, like in Washington, you're not allowed to smell it. They have they have sample jars out, right? Which is just a glass sealed jar with some buds in it that you can look at. And like, you can turn it up and look at the bud structure, but that doesn't really tell you a lot as far as the terpene profile goes. And so at that point, you're kind of at the mercy of the bud tender. And so if you go out and I say, educate yourself a little, right? And kind of play scientist yourself, go out, read a bunch of stuff kind of see what kind of aromatherapies you kind of tend to favor, right? If you're a big lavender fan, you might be a fan of indicas because from my experience, indicas tend to typically have a little more linalu in them, hopefully. And then there are some brands out there that do terpene testing and make an effort to put those analysis on their labels. And so then you can at least kind of fall back on that. And then having an open discussion with the bud tender, don't just take everything they say as like the word of God, right? Kind of giving them pushback and being able to have an open-ended discussion with them. It will really help you navigate that. But right now it's just tough because it's, it's a state by state situation. Some States let you look at it. Some States won't even let you look at it. You know what I mean? And so it's really challenging. I mean, Jason, is there a method that you kind of came up with when your friends came and visited you when you were living out in Colorado to kind of help them navigate that, that same kind of obstacle? I think that you brought up a good point there about testing out some aromatherapy things and things like that. Because when I was working on researching for the cannabis terpene experience, I started to understand like, okay, what is the full realm of plants that a specific terpene is prominent in? You know, I knew that linalool was in lavender and of course, pinings and pine and all those sorts of things. But beyond that, what plants are these other, you know, I tried to give maybe five to 10 examples of the different plants, you know, and there, there's, there's one, um, I think it's the terpene neurolidol that's in corn and tomatoes and things that you, you know, you really wouldn't be expecting, especially when you know about cannabis terpenes. I think it's interesting that you can look throughout nature and I started identifying really that there are definitely, I migrate towards specific plants. I came to the understanding that these plants that I migrate to, very diverse, you know, flowers or teas or cannabis or hops, they all tend to have some of the same dominant terpenes. And so it's like my nose is telling me, hey, you need this. And so 
I found that that's what works for me in that, like, I just kind of took stock of what other plants am I really into and what are the terpenes that are in those plants. And at the back end of, of our book, we put an appendix that kind of dived into the scientific literature, a lot of gas chromatography results to look at. Here is a specific essential oil, a lavender essential oil, a rose essential oil, whatever the essential oil might be. What are the dominant molecules in those essential oils? And then I was able to kind of understand, okay, so these are the molecules that I kind of want to look for whenever I'm seeking out cannabis products. And plus, I also, you know, I, I started to understand some of the medicinal properties of different terpenes. And so there are definitely ones that I look out for personally um, when I have access to the information. Like I said, in Pennsylvania, I think that I'm not sure if this has changed, but at one time it was just Pennsylvania and Nevada that had required terpenes to be on product labels. Um, I would hope that other companies have taken it upon themselves to kind of lead by example and put terpenes on their on their product labels because I really do believe that it's what changes up one product from the next, um, especially if you're talking about flour or or you know a bait pen or something like that. So I think that's kind of what's worked for me is to just brainstorm of as what plants am I am I into and and then seek out plants, uh, cannabis plants or cannabis products that, that tend to have higher terpenes. And linalool is definitely one that I migrate to across various plants as jasmine or other types of teas to um, lavender to um, different hops. Like it, it's, it's very prevalent in what I, what I tend to migrate to. So I think like that kind of coincides with what you were saying there and with the aromatherapy, understanding I like this type of, of aromatherapy oil. It does the job for me. And then understanding what terpenes are in that essential oil and then looking for those uh, where possible uh, in the cannabis industry. That's really well said. Is there any sort of cross knowledge between, let's say, in like the beer industry towards the cannabis industry with the terpenes, where if you are looking for a certain type of smell and taste with the beer, can that work with the cannabis side as well? Uh, I'm not, I mean, I'm not sure if I understand. So for example, you were describing how there's certain terpenes you look for in the experience and then use that as kind of a barometer of making a selection in the cannabis process. Does that work with the, the beer industry towards the cannabis industry? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a good question. Cause I, you know, I, I tend to migrate to hazy hoppy beers and I, I haven't really met one I haven't liked. So, um, <laughs> you know, I'm not like, I'm, I'm not feeling like anxious from one and, and I don't really know what levels of terpenes are in these different beers. I just know that people that are doing a lot of dry hopping, um, you know, Pittsburgh has become an amazing spot for super hoppy, hazy IPAs. And unfortunately, there's nobody like testing that. You know, you're not getting a certificate of analysis on a website for a beer. Um, I'd personally love to see that being kind of a, a, a data nerd, but it very well could be like, I know that some people have different, um, um, like my, my wife, for example, uh, there's different hops that tend to invoke an allergic reaction. And as a matter of fact, we were growing hops on our property. And, um, you know, if you touch it, like some people will, will show like a red line on their skin. So there's definitely some skin irritation, some kind of allergy, uh, and then other hops don't seem to invoke that same response. So I would say there's got to be um, a physiological, uh, 
you know, outcome from drinking one type of, of hazy IPA to a different based on the ingredients that are coming out of the hops into the beer, you know? So I think there's probably some justification there, but I just, I, I don't have any data that I could point to. No, and I have that same experience, but with cannabis, because I remember walking through the field and there were certain, certain cannabis plants I'd touch and my entire skin would break out red and be super allergic and other strains, nothing would happen. And I mean, I know that um, cannabis and hops and a lot of these plants produce the terpenes as uh, a means of natural pest mitigation, right? To kind of help them survive in nature. And so there's got to be, the reason would most likely be to uh, deter predators from eating their flowers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's actually one of my favorite things about the terpene is that it has this, I think uh, it was a guy named Jim Hole that had coined this, this uh, he had written an article for terpenes and testing and he called it the, the strange Jekyll and Hyde world of the terpene. And I love that because, you know, we're looking at the, the, the terpenes throughout this conversation and just often in general from the perspective of the human being, but from the herbivore that's, you know, chewing on a plant what I find amazing is that the plant can produce terpenes in response to that. And those responses can be um, either maybe just the, the bug doesn't like the taste of the terpene. And so it just flies to a different plant. But I think the even cooler aspect is that the terpene almost serves as like a, a modern day smartphone or a means of communication because the, the plant can sense that it's being eaten and it can release these terpenes and somewhere out there, you know, the terpenes float along the breeze and there's a predator out there that gets that phone call and comes to the plant's rescue and eats the herbivore. And this has happened with spider mites and predatory mites. And I, I think that's like an amazing poetry in nature that, you know, this can serve as kind of a communication line for the destruction of a, a specific type of predator to the plant. I, I find that to be really amazing. I need that Netflix documentary now because that is that's an incredible <laughs> story on how you just described it. So let's, let's take one more step forward. Jason, obviously the cannabinoid industry has got a ton of misconceptions. In your opinion, what is the biggest misconception in the cannabinoid industry? That's a great question. It's one I always ask everybody. So you're putting me on the spot here. Um, <laughs> I, I think... You know, I, I think that, that the biggest misconception, and this is probably maybe cliche, but unfortunately it's still prevalent, is that the more THC, the better. Um, you know, when you look at pharmacological responses, you often see this like bell-shaped dose response curve where low doses of something and high doses of something, you know, may have very similar effects, but it's often those middle doses that are much, much more efficacious. It's like this with certain vitamins. You know, you don't just keep eating stockpiles of, of a specific vitamin because in some, after you get to a certain concentration, it's not going to be as, as beneficial. And in some cases, maybe it's harmful. And definitely not trying to imply that THC at 95% would be harmful. But I'm just saying that products become a bit, you know, one-dimensional. And I, I think that understanding that driving the potency through the roof isn't necessarily going to be the most effective if you're taking the, the product or ingesting the product specifically for a medicinal attribute like anti-anxiety or, you know, pain relief, things like that. You're not necessarily going to get a better 
benefit just because you're doing a dab versus, you know, something that might be a little lower in potency. Guys, I want to talk to you today about one of our new partners, CESC. CESC is a nonprofit organization providing a compelling and complementary alternative. They represent the ability to harness a flexible, collaborative approach to scientific advancements. They are comprised of leading doctors and researchers in the cannabis and cannabinoid science space for almost a decade. Their act first, talk later operating principle has now led to a successful series of disruptive innovations in the cannabis science space. They need your help now. Join them, collaborate with them, or support them. Go to thecesc.org to get involved now. Together, we can change the world. Yeah, perfectly said. And I think as the consumer educates themselves when they walk into a dispensary, I think the overwhelming experience, they just kind of lean towards if you want to get really high, you grab the one with the highest CHC and that's the easiest way to make a selection. And I think dispensaries are really smart and they raise the prices of that and everyone kind of makes money on there. But I definitely agree, Jason. I think as the industry evolves, I think that's going to be a a really big um, misconception that gets kind of revealed. We're going to ask... Two questions before we dive into the predictions. You could sum up your experience in the cannabinoid space into one main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation. What would that be? Uh, Well, I I think that I would have to go a bit political and say that, you know, the fact that cannabis is still a schedule one drug, in my opinion, is a crime against humanity. Um, in addition to some other schedule one drugs like psilocybin, but, uh, we'll focus on cannabis for right now. I think that's the one main takeaway that I, that I would impart to somebody that what you have heard for 80 plus years of reefer madness and, and, you know, go back and watch some of the old films like reefer madness or marijuana and understand that those were meant to be serious and not fun. Like, you know, cannabis culture movies that they turned into like that was actually the status quo and the the fact that media could be so you know damaging to a very benign plant i find to be really uh something that exemplifies absurdity uh you know in our in our history so i think that's that would be the main thing the last time you consumed any cannabinoids (laughs) wow like you're gonna have todd on after this too uh, yeah. So last night, for sure, you know, medicine is meant, you know, often when you go to the doctor, um, you're told to take something daily. So, you know, that's, that's essentially how I feel. Noted. Prediction time. Five years from now, will terpenes be a popular selection characteristic of users walking into a dispensary to select a product? If yes, how will users understand which terpenes communicate which feeling and behavior? Yeah, I think most definitely that's the case. And I think that color coding will be uh, one of the more popular options to do that. Some brands have already started to do that. Um, I don't know when I've seen the color coding, like at some of the brands here in Pennsylvania, I don't know if they're color coding based on terpene profiles, but if I was doing it, that's what I would do. You know, there's there's ways that you could, like I talked about, you know, um, NAPRO researches, phytofacts, something like that, where you can take this all of this information and, and make a graph like that that shows all these different categories. You can then know, I've got these 300 different plants I'm growing, or maybe that's crazy, maybe 30 plants that, that you're growing. 
how do they all compare chemically as a whole, not just in cannabinoid profiles, not just in terpene profiles, but that cool chemovar, how does that compare from plant A to plant B? And I think what's important for the consumer is, you know, I found a product here in Pennsylvania that I really love, but I can't get it anymore. This hasn't been on the shelves for a long time. So what product is there that I can actually take that will be, will resemble that same experience? Like I tend to look at different cannabis plants as, or different products as what type of music do I want to hear? Some plants definitely drive me to want to listen to specific types of music. And often I'm looking for the plant that I'm cool with whatever's on. And if I feel that way and I feel like very content by that product, I want to be content all the time, right? Like that's a great, good stress relief. So that's where I feel like if you know, I've migrated to this brand, you know, specific color. I, I like the, the, the purple blend, not, not purple having to do with like cannabis purple, but just how they color coded. I think that that's going to be kind of uh, something that helps consumers have reproducible experiences. You know, as, as a scientist, like the lack of reproducibility in the experience isn't necessarily a, a bad thing, but, you know, because it is part of the experience, it is part of the trial and error and you get to like, it's kind of cool to, to try different things and experiment in different ways. I mean, that's like the, the lore of the scientist. But for somebody new to the industry, if they have a bad experience the first time around, this plant could significantly benefit their quality of life, and yet they may not come back to it. And I think that's what we need to prevent as responsible product manufacturers, is making sure that people really understand what they're ingesting besides just a cool or, or, or funky uh, cultivar name. It's going to be tough to follow that up, Kellen. you want to take a swing? Uh, I mean, I agree with exactly what Jason said. Um, I know that, for an example, uh, the company I worked for in Washington, it was called Leafworks. Um, and we went with a different variation of the Indica Sativa hybrid kind of model. And it was kind of playing on the the feeling aspect and how the, the user or the consumer feels after ingesting the product. And um, we color coordinated it. We called it the Mood Dudes, right? And so it was like chilling, which was more of the indicas that had higher linalool concentrations, right? And and <clears throat> then there was like go get them, which was uh, like a yellow color, and the the in the chillin was blue, more of like a relaxing color from a, an aesthetic perspective. And the sativas were were a yellow, kind of more of an active color, right? And then the the hybrids were like an orange, right? And so we we were implementing that uh, color coordinating system to try to differentiate the products on the shelf. And I mean, it was really well received and I know that there's going to be a lot more work that needs to be done on that front, but you can see the smarter brands out there are starting to move that way because it's really, really challenging to communicate the magnitude of information associated with these chemical terpene profiles on different plants. I mean, there's probably over a hundred different terpenes that are ubiquitous to cannabis. I know that some labs right now are only testing for 60 or 70. And, and even then it's, it's kind of overwhelming just even as a, as a, as a scientist, when I go through some of those COAs, it's like, okay, like, what am I even looking at here? There's 10 terpenes I've never even heard of. And they, they literally are in less than 1.1% concentrations. And so the, that type of information is so hard to to digest and internalize in a decision making process. So 
infographics are going to be the way to go. And I think color is probably the easiest way. I'm really curious to see how many kind of categories it ends up breaking down into. If, if it is just going to be the three categories, it's, there's going to be a lot of kind of um, room for air within those, I guess. I, I would probably, I would bet that it turns into maybe five or six different categories and you kind of see different ones evolve over time. I would, I would kind of compare it to maybe the, the wine industry with kind of appellations and, and that whole aspect where, you can have a Chianti from California and you can have a Chianti from, from Italy. And there's going to be subtle differences between those two different wines. And, and that's really has to do with, with the, the grape and where it was grown and the different chemical profile within that grape. So I could see the cannabis industry kind of following something like that, right? Where you have your Chiantes and you have your Chardonnays and you have all these different kind of systems to categorize those different um, types of cannabis plants. And so that's where I see it going, similar to exactly what Jason said. I mean, as a non-scientist, Brian, uh, what would be the easiest way for you to kind of make that decision process? Is the color coordination the easiest? Do you like the wine system? Where's your head at? The color coordination is definitely the easiest, but it has to be introduced universally, right? Like it has to be one where I walk into a dispensary here in New York and I can see the same colored graph as I do in Colorado, because we want to make the experience exciting and enjoyable and handing someone like myself a binder when I walk into a dispensary for the first time in Colorado, I I don't have time to review the 7,000 products. I want to know, you know, roughly the type of experience. And like you were saying, Kellen, it doesn't have to be pinpoint exact because it's unlikely that they can do that. It just has to be in the ballpark. And I just have to know personally that when I pick up a certain type of flower, I'm not going to have an anxiety attack because I'm using the flower to help calm myself and to calm these nerves, not to excite them and to put me into the corner where I had to go to sleep and hide. So I think kind of adopting a universal standard is the best way for, you know, the, the average person who's interested in kind of learning about the product that doesn't have the chance to go onto the websites to educate themselves pretty intensely, but is interested in learning about these possibilities. Because like you were saying, Jason, the only way people are going to really learn is to experience it. And if they have that off-putting experience, especially that first time it's so critical because they're, they're likely unlikely to go back anytime soon if they have such a negative first time experience. Yeah. And I think ultimately like, you know, when I look back over history and those 80 years that we've been fed a lot of um, misinformation, you know, I wonder how many people could have benefited from the plant. And if you start taking modern day people that aren't being necessarily subjected to that style of, of disinformation and there's, there's, now they're getting an abundance of information in the other direction. I, I think that it, it's critical that every person who can benefit from cannabis um, tr- try it a- and see if it helps them in a way that maybe more traditional modern pharmaceutical medications may not have. And, and I feel like that first experience or maybe the first several experience, if they're buying multiple products uh, at the dispensary their first time out, I think it's it's vital that they they have as, as good of an experience as possible. And it's not always going to happen, but I think that being able to, uh, you know, and I think that's where some of the apps have come into play too. You know, there's, there's an app for everything. And, and I think there's been some apps out there like Relief App that allow consumers to kind of keep a, a, a phone-based diary of how they felt on different products. Like I'm old school. Like I like to have an Excel file with all of the, 
cannabinoid and terpene information from different products that I've had and put different classifiers there about how I felt and try to go back to some of that in the future. But I think that for, for a brand that's looking to, um, you know, uh, ensure that their consumers have a reproducible experience, there's definitely some options out there. I think about a paper that was published where um, some researchers in Nevada measured the, the cannabinoid and terpene profiles of something like 396 differently named cannabis plants and that all boiled down to three basic chemistries. So people were taking three basic chemistries and labeling it with 400 different names. And that becomes a real challenge to a consumer to try to digest it. And then you end up just buying by the plant name because it sounds cool versus knowing something about how the chemistry is going to treat you. And I think that's, that's the real important part of purchasing a product, especially for, for new timers. And it's, it's kind of a struggle sometimes when I go into dispensaries and I see how they're portraying things um, and they'll ask you questions. And some of them have really started to list out the top four or five terpenes uh, here in the Pittsburgh area, at least. I think that's a great way to go because it's at least providing that extra information. But again, like for somebody that's a, a, a lay person that doesn't understand what they're looking at, like, you know, I really feel like the color coding could be a way to go to really simplify it and, and make it visual and, and give people the best opportunity to have a, a great first cannabis experience. Perfectly said. So Jason, for our listeners that want to get in touch and learn more about you and the magazine, where can they connect with you and get some information? I've got a simple email address, jason at terpenesandtesting.com or jason at extractionmagazine.com. Um, you know, you can visit our websites. We've got a bunch of stuff there. You know, we have uh, all those standard social media platforms, including LinkedIn. So I'm on LinkedIn as well. I'd be happy to uh, answer any other questions somebody might have to the best of my ability. Or if I don't know the answer, uh, it sounds like great fodder for a new blog topic. So um, if, if there's, as I like when people send questions because it gives us uh, some real world uh, consumer or reader um, insight into what we should be covering next. So I'd be happy to, uh, happy to chat. Awesome. So I'll link those all up in the show notes. Thanks for taking the time. All right. Thank you guys. It was great to talk with you. I'd love to do it again sometime. For sure. Talk Absolutely. soon. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season 1 of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.